Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. believing that you're in love with the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank whoever performed that song and providing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. This is a wicked good podcast. It is the people's podcast. And both of those claims can be proven by math and science. Before I start rolling with my show, I want to uh, invite everyone to join or partake in the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. Uh, it's real easy to find. Just search Stick to Wrestling and we'll let you in. And it's cool. We talk about wrestling. We talk about results. And we answer questions. This week, we actually posted our most watched movies of all time. So we're diverse. We don't always stick to wrestling there. And whatever you do, don't follow me unless it's on Twitter. So, uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. This week, I retweeted a lot of cool stuff from the late 60s, early 70s, early 80s. Some cool pictures going around. So that's what you'll get from me. And with that, I want to bring on someone I've wanted on. He, this is the first time he's been on this podcast, but certainly not the first time he's been on a wrestling podcast veteran podcaster mike mills mike how are you i'm good john and uh, i need to apologize because you've been trying to get in touch with me for some time and as i was telling you off air a while back uh, i rarely check my dms whether it be facebook or twitter and i i feel like i never have enough hours in the week and i've uh, been a bit of a recluse from uh, certain parts of social media and uh, i'm sorry that i had not gotten back to you sooner so i gotta apologize in advance but uh, as I say that, I got to ask you a question. Am I to understand that you had a Tommy Rich episode uh, last week or week before that of some sorts? It was kind of a Tommy Rich episode, yes. And it was last week. As a matter of fact, it just came out today. It, the 40th anniversary of Tommy Rich winning the NWA championship is coming up, I believe, on Tuesday. So we kind of took a look at that as well as the rest of the show from Augusta where he won the title. So what was the cliff notes on the quote-unquote rumor? Because I, I haven't heard it. What were the cliff notes on that quote-unquote rumor? I'm just curious uh, what, what may have been discussed because we kind of make fun of Tommy Rich on my show a lot. But it's because... Making fun of Tommy have, Rich! You, you may have heard Tommy Rich and I had a run-in many years ago. So I just wonder what the cliff notes were from that discussion because we... We joke about that on my juvenile and uh, ridiculous shows that I do. I am fr frankly amazed. Number one, that I mean, you fucked Tommy Rich up, right? Um, he was about <laughs> to get something. That's that's for damn sure. But I, I don't want to get into it. I don't know what you've heard, so I'm not. To, I don't want to. I don't want to hijack your show. I just was curious about what, right. what may have been discussed there because I have people who tell me I can't let it go. <laughs> Go make that boy walk funny. No, the, the rumor <laughs> that I heard, and I heard it very shortly after I started getting the Wrestling Observer newsletter. So this is like late 86, early 87. Heard it from a guy who was like a, a newsletter veteran. And he said that uh, in order to get the NWA title, Tommy Rich had to have sexual relations with Jim Barnett. 
that was the rumor. And I believed it when I first heard it because I was kind of naive. And then I learned basically what goes into winning the NWA title. And I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Okay. I'm just curious. Like, I mean, that's what I've heard too, but just was curious more than anything. And the only reason I brought it up is you had, when I finally got back in touch with you via DM, you had mentioned uh, something about something was said in the stick to wrestling group. So that's why I asked about, about my Tommy rich story, which had nothing to do with sexual innuendos or whatnot. I just was <laughs> curious more than anything, but no, I'm sure you guys had a great discussion about, uh, about Mr. Mr. Rich. Oh, what a jabroni. <laughs> I, I, I've heard so much stuff about Tommy rich that, you know, I mean, the, the guy's all over the place. I met him briefly once and he was fine, but anyone can be fine for 60 seconds. Right. Theoretically, yeah, that's true. Theoretically, <laughs> but right. I, I didn't mean to attack the show with any Tommy Rich stories. Hi, I'm I'm doing great, John. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, same here. I mean, Mike, my favorite LSU and New Orleans Saints fan, or at least one of them. I made a big mistake growing up. It was going to be either Tennessee or LSU, and I went with Tennessee, and I'm regretting that a little bit now. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, the, the, the Vols have good. The, the Vols have a, a nice history. I mean, recent history hasn't been so well, but uh, they have they have good history. I mean, um, it's just one of those things, man. These things, unless you're Alabama, and even in the even there's a time period where it was cyclical with them. But these things are cyclical, man. I mean, you know, I can remember when LSU was on their, you know, on their butt back in the '80s and. Well, later eighties and nineties, I mean, LSU, oh my God, they were, they were just mediocre at best. So these things are kind of cyclical, but, uh, yeah, Tennessee will get off the mat eventually. No, I, I think Tennessee has taken 10 years off of my life and LSU football 2019 had the best season ever. And Hey, we're finally talking about the Curly Hallman era, LSU football and stick to wrestling. We're due. Mike grew up in Louisiana as a mid-south wrestling fan and that is what this show is going to be dedicated to and i have been looking forward to it mike knows a lot more about other things too but mike when did you discover mid-south wrestling when when did you first start watching late 1981 is when i first discovered it and on an old black and white tv that my mom had in the living room uh just caught my attention there uh, I won't say I became uh, like a super fan or anything at that point because I was still relatively pretty young in late 81. But as time went on and I would catch it on Sunday, I'm sorry, Saturday afternoons on Channel 26, I just uh, fell in love with it. By the time we got to late 82, I mean, I was hook, line and sinker. Vivid, vivid memories of the time from Mid-South. And, and that's when I became a fan. And obviously, I mean, that was the the time period of the, what I would call the height of junkyard dog as well in mid South. So I came a fan then and, uh, man, just been, I'll say hooked ever since, but I can't say I haven't fallen out of love with pro wrestling at times either. So, you know, do with that information, what you may, but that's around the time when I fell in love with it. All right. And I'm thinking, wow, you're around six, seven years old then. Yeah. Yeah. I was very, very young. That's the thing, you know, like, like I said, I, I, I don't know how, you know, when you're young, you just kind of memories can be fuzzy on certain things. So I don't even remember like the very first episode. I've tried to recall it. I'm like, was that the first time? And then you start like your memory starts messing with you because you're like, you know, you saw it again at some other point. You're like, I remember seeing that. But then I was like, 
oh wait, was I older when I saw that? So it's one of those things where I can remember late 81, uh, but I can tell you this much, like my first vivid memories where I'm like, I know where I was when I was watching that was when uh, the DBIC turn, I can remember that vividly. I remember, you know, dog coming back as staggerly. Like those are vivid memories. Like I, as I speak about it right here, I can remember, remember just sitting on the floor, like in the living room and the uh, old black and white TV on. And I, I could still see myself just looking at that screen when all that went down. So like you, you have more vivid memories of it than, than others, but yeah, it was it was fun times, man. Boy, wrestling was a whole lot different back then. I'm sure you haven't heard that before, right? Oh, yeah, a whole lot better. I mean, what was your reaction as someone who was watching live? I mean, they set the angle up so well. It was supposed to be Ted DiBiase against Bob Roop in a loser-leave-town match with no DQ. And then that week before that match, uh, JYD beats Bob Roop for the North American title, and it is now Junkyard Dog against his on screen and real life, best friend Tid DiBiase and DiBiase did what he did. Like, were you surprised? What was your reaction? When you go back and watch that, now it's been a long time. I say a long time. I don't remember the last, let's see, what was that? Uh, October, September of 82. So Brian and I reviewed that one. It's, it's been over a year ago now, a year and a half ago now at this point. But like, when you go back and watch that, what was going through my mind is it's really weird because you had two fan favorites with DiBiase and Dog. So if you watch that match back, you'll see that the crowd is kind of like, I don't want to say they're on pins and needles. I don't want to say they're antsy, but they're, they're just kind of sitting there watching because they're watching the two faces face off. And it's like, damn, who do we root for here? Like you get that feeling as you watch it. So it was really weird as a fan. And again, I was a young fan, but I remember watching it and just like going, man, like, you know who your favorite is. I mean, dog is my favorite, but at the same time, you're like, man, who, who do I cheer for? Like, wh where do I go with this? You know? So it, it had a very, very weird feeling to it as you watch it. And even back to this, to this day, like I said, when I watched it about a year and a half ago, I still had that same feeling. Like you're watching it and yeah, you know, I wasn't educated enough at that point to, think something may happen. Like that's something I think we kind of fall into that trap now, you know, John, we're a lot older. So we overanalyze everything. That's one of the things actually I do on the mid South pod. Sometimes I'll point out, I go, look, when I watched this, when I was 10 years old, eight years old, I wasn't thinking about X, Y, and Z, but like you watch it now and you, you can poke some holes in it. Well, like when I was rewatching that, I mean, I don't know if I could poke holes in it. I, I still don't think now if I was like, if I was watching it at the age I'm at now for the first time, I still don't know if I'd go, one of them is going to turn. I, I might, I'm thinking I'd probably say that, but even then it's like, eh, I don't know. So it really was a weird feeling kind of watching that match. And then when it happens, like the crowd in me, the cr if you watch the crowd when, when DiBiase turns, that is the perfect expression for the most part of how I felt. Like confused. I was like, wait, did that just happen? Because I didn't expect DiBiase to turn. Again, I was very young. I didn't expect Dog to turn either. So the crowd was kind of like, oh my God, that just happened. Like there wasn't a loud, if you watch those shows from the Irish McNeil and you watch how it all goes down a lot of times and it, it, it gets loud in there. At that point though, they weren't like, 
the initial reaction was not one of you dirty SOB. How could you do that? At least I'm recalling in my mind right now. That's not how it was. So it was really weird when you watched him turn on dog and then pins him because the crowd for as lively as they could be for mid South taping, it was just like, Oh my God, that just happened. Like it was kind of almost like a shock. I don't want to compare it to Undertaker losing to Brock. Cause it's not the same thing. But like, you know thing. how, like, you know how like there was shock in the in the building? Wow, that, uh-huh. you know, think about it. It was kind of like that same feeling. Obviously, there weren't seventy thousand people in Irish McNeil, though. If I can make a comparison. All right. I mean, I thought it was you know a perfectly done turn. And the next week, I think Ted DiBiase was wrestling Tony Torres, and after you know he knocked him out with the loaded glove, and DiBiase just had this sneer on his face, and that's when the crowd went against him. It was so well done. Yeah, his um, I remember now that you say that Brian and I kind of reviewed and I think we pointed out like how the mannerisms from that point after the turn, they changed and he just became like this slimy, just guy that you looked at and you're like, you son of a, you know, like that's the feeling you had and you wanted, you wanted dog to get back at him or you wanted somebody to get at him. But I mean, it was done. I mean, again, I didn't expect it. I was a young kid. It was done so well. And then obviously, you know, if you fast forward, the angle went on for a long time where he's this heel and you're just waiting for him to get his comeuppance. And eventually he does get his comeuppance. It's months later, the dog gets back at him, but it's just, it's just crazy how it all, you know, how it turned out when you, when you think about it. And I remember DiBiase, I don't know what podcast he was on, but he was talking about like when the idea came up, I think he told, um, I think it was Ernie Ladd. He was, was Ernie Ladd. Yeah. He was like, what if, you know, cause they were trying to figure out something to do different. And he was like, what if I turn on my best friend? And it like, you know, it seems so simple, right? Turn on your best friend, but yeah. it really, really was good. And then we got the whole stagger Lee thing, which got, I mean, like when I tell you that's my vivid memory, I can remember watching stagger Lee come out to whoop Deviasi. And I was like, Oh my God. That's the dog. That's the dog. <laughs> like, you know, just being a kid going crazy. It was so good. And I mean, like, we knew he's got this stupid looking outfit on. It's like, oh, that's the dog. Come on. But hey, man, that was wrestling in the 80s. It was really good stuff. I mean, you were supposed to know it was the dog. That was like the whole point of the angle that DiBiase cheated and screwed JYD and now JYD is coming back and he'll cheat and screw Ted DiBiase in my own opinion Ted DiBiase is the best wrestling heel I have ever seen and when I say that I love the million dollar man don't get me wrong but heel Ted DiBiase in mid-south I mean he would kill you the way he would swat a mosquito off his arm he did not care yeah he, he was he was so good it was the subtle stuff like I remember even like this is months after like the, you know, stagger Lee and everything. I remember DiBiase's, you know, he he's at this point, he's a tag champion and he's, he's like, I can't wrestle. I got this cast on my arm and he's just being a slimy heel. Nothing's wrong with his arm. You know, I, it's just, just a little things like that. And I remember like, I remember Brian and I reviewed it. It's like, what he had this cast on his arm and I can't remember if it was Duggan. I think it was Duggan. Actually, it did. It did slammed his arm against the, the ring post. It was Duggan. <laughs> And the damn cast, I was like, what the hell was that? Because it exploded. Like, yes. it just, 
like like it was popcorn or something <laughs> uh, styrofoam that just exploded into like you know a hundred pieces it was just really good stuff like that's just one example you know here he is he's loading the glove but then the next week you know oh my wrist you know i can't wrestle you know look at the cast he just was a slimy heel man he was he was really good at, at being a heel don't get me wrong he was a good face too but when he turned on the dog in that territory that sealed his fate for for a number of years let me say that and it took a hell of a turn to turn him into a face again when they finally did years later. Uh, that was an amazing angle with Dick Murdoch and Ric Flair. And you're right. I mean, that was going to take a lot to get those people to cheer for DiBiase, but they were cheering for him during the Ric Flair match, which I thought was amazing as well. That, I think I posted this in the pro wrestling and whatever group years ago. Uh, and you responded because I tagged you. I was like, John, what's your opinion on this? We, we probably first met. This couldn't have been much longer after we first met. I was like, what's your opinion on like that turn and that hour of TV? And I don't remember what your response is, but almost every hardcore fan that I've ever talked to that has seen that, they'll all tell you that's probably one of the best hours of like wrestling TV ever. I um, completely agree. It is because it's it's so balls to the wall. And it's so much happens in that one hour with DiBiase and Flair and then Murda. I mean, it was impossible to not have sympathy for DiBiase. I mean, he bled a gusher. I mean, it was sickening almost how much he bled. And then he's wrestling and he's getting these cheers. And then... To cap it off, like when they do a thing where Murdoch brain busters them on the floor in the concrete and Irish McNeil, it was just like, oh my God. And I mean, it, it, it's incredible. Like that's good storytelling. And that's a moment where you're like, I remember where I was when I watched that. And that's one of my top moments ever in wrestling. Another story about that, John, and then I want to hear what else you got to say about it. I remember like the next week or maybe two weeks later, I don't remember the timeline. I, I was by my grandmother's house and my grandmother wasn't a wrestling fan. Matter of fact, I think I was the only like person in my family that was a wrestling fan. Like my mother never watched it. Yeah, I was a single parent household. My dad, whenever, when I would go by his house on the weekends, he didn't watch it. My grandmother, my grandfather, nobody, like. it's, it's amazing. I grew up, I literally grew up in the city of new Orleans and nobody besides me was watching Mid-South Wrestling, at least as far as my family goes, which is very weird in a way when you think about it. Not that I didn't have friends. I had a lot of friends that watched it, but like my parents and stuff, they never watched it. So what I was going to say was I was by my grandmother's house and we were sitting at the dining room table and my grandmother brings it up. Like, I, I don't remember if we were talking about wrestling or somebody was in there. And again, there's no wrestling fans. My grandmother says, you know, that wrestling's not real. Something like this. That wrestling ain't real. But that guy, did y'all hear about the guy that really got hurt? And I was like, Mama, who are you talking about? She said, the Ted DiBiase fella. And I was like, and I looked at her. And so you couldn't tell her. She was, she was saying that wrestling ain't real, but that guy really got hurt. So like, you know, they had the non-believers believing that he was really, really injured. So it was it was so well done. Great, great hour of TV. Every now and then I'll go back and watch it just to like relive it. And I still kind of get goosebumps and chills when I watch it. I try not to watch it too much, but it just was phenomenal television for that one hour. 
you know who really poured sugar on it was Bill Watts. When they, they did the injury angle, Ric Flair's like, I'm going home. And Bill Watts, like, you know, is alone backstage somewhere. And he says, you know, Ted DiBiase is going to wrestle. He's not going to let Ric Flair get away. Now, they have applied a pressure bandage to Ted DiBiase's head. I need to warn everyone that during the match, this bandage might come loose. It might come off and it might be very bloody. Oh, what 15 year old boy is going to turn that television off? (laughs) That's exactly it. And I was about 10 years old at that time. I was not turning the television. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have been any more glued to a television. I think the only time in my life, John, the only time in my life I've ever been more glued to a television was Super Bowl against the Colts when the Saints Mm -hmm. were playing. That moment tops anything for me as a just sports fan in general, because obviously I'm a diehard Saints fan. So like God waited for that my whole life. You know, here I am, you know, 2009. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. I'm like, I'm never going to see this. And then I'm like, oh, my God, it finally happened like that moment. But but as crazy as it sounds, the DiBiase face turn in that one hour of television and his injury is, is like not far under that. Now, and now again, it's, it's a couple of rungs, but that's the type of like emotion where you're like glued to the TV to see what's going to happen next. Peyton Manning is so hated out here that people were buying Saints merchandise before that Super Bowl. And, and at the pizza place I used to go to, there was a picture of the Peyton Manning interception. I prominently posted. That's how much people hate Manning up here. Now, <laughs> I know. Well, let's talk about another big thing that happened in Mid-South Wrestling. 1984, Junkyard Dog leaves abruptly, goes to the WWF. Bill Watts lets him have it on TV. Mike, what was your reaction to, first of all, just getting the news that JYD had been run off by Butch Reed and, and now is going to wrestle somewhere where the competition is less fierce? I got two different feelings on it. And part of it is because I've been swayed in later years by just opinions I've heard from others. And mainly like I heard Ricardo Coleman talking about it on the 605 uh, a while back. But I'll tell you like at first what I thought. And my first impression was, you know, dang, the dog's leaving. Like, or not the dog's leaving, but he just up and left. And then you're right. Watts is just, they're just trashing him on TV and things like that. So it was kind of like, damn, he's leaving. But I will tell you this, and, and I hate to admit this now, like when he leaves, I mean, I did watch him in WWF. I actually went to the first show that he did when he came back, like returned for the first time at the Superdome. I went to the, I was at that, I was at that show that dog was at. It was really weird to be there. Cause like, not that I went to many shows, but like there was a, or, or, or any <laughs> at all, but Cause I didn't go to any of the Superdome extravaganzas, but it just was kind of like weird seeing dog in a WWF ring and whatnot. So that, that was kind of strange in itself, but it was kind of weird as I've gotten older. Like when I saw him when I was younger and he left, I was like, Oh, what? you know, okay. But I still could see him on WWF TV. But as I've gotten older, like, and like you start to kind of think about it more critically. And this is where you get a little jaded. I remember Ricardo was talking about it and he was like saying, you know, I think it was him. He was like, you know, it was kind of time. And to be honest, I don't know how much more dog had left in him for Mid-South. I mean, he he had already gained a lot of weight. He gained more, which is crazy when you think about it. I mean, I think about the weight he gained, like, not only WWF, but, like, you know, once you see him back 
in the NWA and in like 89 and then in 90, you're like, oh my God, it's just, yeah. it's just crazy. So, and it's really sad because no matter how many times like guys like me, you or Ricardo will say, Hey, this guy was a bonafide, legitimate star. He was as big as they come, not in weight and size, but just in, you know, who he was to go from that to leaving in 84, going to WWF and I'll say he was successful there, but it wasn't the same. I think ultimately his time in the promotion had come to an end. I mean, I know he left in the middle of the feud, but I don't know much longer he could have gone. Like, I mean, what do you think, John? Do you think, like, do you think, I watched it all those years. So like, I felt like now that I think about it, like, well, you know, most people stay in the territory X amount of years and then they're gone. I mean, he had been there for a long time. So it was almost like, his time, it was time for him to go. He didn't, he didn't leave the right way, but I think ultimately it was kind of time for him to go too. I was thinking about this earlier today, and my opinion is that JYD had peaked, you know, 80, 80, 81, 82, and like 83, he started to go downhill by 84. You know, every wrestler, even a legend like Junkyard Dog, even a legend like Dusty Rhodes, they have a shelf life. And it's time to move on to someone else. And, and my own opinion is that Watts had already decided to move on and have Hacksaw Jim Duggan be his top star. And I think JYD would have either slid down the card or as he did, he would have gone wrestled somewhere else. He would have, you know, took up permanent residence in mid-Atlantic wrestling or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like, they all, every star has a shelf life and nothing goes on forever. I, I mean, like, I, I know this isn't, we're not talking world-class here, but I mean, I just think about world-class. I've, I've watched the Freebird and Von Eric feud a million times and gone through 83 or when it started in 82 and then 83 and 84. It's all got a shelf life. I mean, and it's not a knock on any of those guys that were in those feuds, but there comes a time when it's like, all right, you know, I think Cornette always says it. How can I miss you if you never go away? Yep. And there's validity in that in pro wrestling. And it hurts me to say JYD had ran his course at that point, but he had been around for a number of years. It's 84. It's just, past, he's, I don't want to say he was past his time, but he had gained a lot of weight. I mean, we started seeing an 83. And it just was time. I mean, it's, it sounds mean, but especially yeah. when it's your guy, but it's what it is. You know, he had, he had ran its course. I, I completely agree. And, you know, JYD, like I said, I think he, he had plateaued. I think for the short term, I think, you know, Watts had already decided here. I think he already made Hacksaw Jim Duggan, his top guy. And it was inevitable that Steve Williams was going to be Watts top guy. Yeah, I mean, Watts had been grooming him for years anyway, right? So, yeah. I mean, we, we got to be honest. And you can go back and watch the TVs and listen to him. And he's, I mean, even when, I'm not trying to take a shot at Dr. Death, but when he first comes out, you watch those matches in 82, even mm -hmm. 83. He's, he he's was a, awful. He's a puppy with big paws. I've heard Cornette <laughs> say that one too. And um, I flat out said, like, I, I hate saying this, but I heard Jim Ross talking about Steve Austin, one, Steve Austin, Steve Williams one time. And, and he's like, oh, he was a natural from the beginning. No, he wasn't. He was a great amateur wrestler. I'm not trying to take that from him. But when you watch him in a pro ring at first, 
he was far from a natural. Like he just, he's moving too fast. He's going to, he's doing it. Just not taking his time. You can see it. He's rushing a lot. Now I will say this. He improved greatly and he improved drastically. And that he's, there's something to be said about that. But Watts was even back then when he wasn't that good, uh, when he first comes in, Oh, Watts is, you know, pumping him up and, you know, he's he's trying to make him the star not, not making him a star overnight, but he's, he's, you know, touting his accomplishments and whatnot. So, uh, you're right. I mean, he was going to be the star. Again, it goes back to the fact I can't miss you if you don't go away. And the other thing is everybody has a shelf life and I hate to say it, but he his shelf life had uh, come and gone at that point. Uh, I, no, I completely agree. And I spent some time thinking about this today and you know, it's not being mean or anything like that. I mean, you know, we're, we're here to be an analytical. Now, what did you think of the Freebirds coming back, returning in 1986 getting that big million dollar contract, which sounded really good in 1986. And you're like, wow, you know, the Mid-South wrestling is all set on the heel side for quite some time with those three. Yeah. You know, so I'll confess that when Mid-South went to UWF, I remember hanging with it for a while. And I don't remember at what point that became like my, second favorite promotion, if you want to call it, but I didn't have the same love affair for UWF and mid South. By the time the Freebirds came in and they signed that million dollar deal and all that, you know, they were in the limo, uh, and all that stuff. But so I had transitioned to, man, I, I was all in with Crockett at that point. Like that was, I was like, man, this is, you know, the promos on TV, like Ric Flair, Dusty, it just was to me, and I, I'm not trying to, I'm look, I'm not trying to down UWF at that point. Mid South. Yeah, you like what you like. Yeah. Like it just, to me, like the television and again, that you had squ- the squash matches were, were on Crockett TV, obviously weren't anything to write home about, but like I say all the time, my, my co-host doc and I and Harper and I, we say this all the time when it comes to like pro wrestling, we don't know as we get older, we're like, do we actually like pro wrestling or do, do we just like the S talking, the crap talking? I don't want to say the word. <laughs> we, uh, let me say it. Do, do we like pro wrestling or do we just like the shit talking? Because yeah. like when we, when we rewatch it, we're like, God, the, 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 the talking smack on those shows in Crockett 86 is like, that's what made you want to go to the building. That's what made you want to show up. And you like, you want to see somebody get their head bashed in, but it's only because they talked you into the building. So like, I'm again, I'm not saying that wasn't happening at all in UWF TV uh, because there was some violent stuff like the sheep herders and fantastics and whatnot. But again, I'll go back to the whole shelf life discussion. When the Freebirds came in, I had seen them in world class for so long and I know it was going to be fresh matchups, but it just was, I wasn't like, yeah, you know, here we go. You know, the let's do this. Like it wasn't the, the whole, all right, this is going to be great. I can't explain why I felt that way, but other than to say, I was like, well, I've just watched them for a few years on world-class TV. Cause that's the thing. We got world-class in new Orleans. Yeah. So I, I'd watched them on world-class TV. So I, I just wasn't as excited. Now that's not a slight on Freebirds. I, I, Terry Gordy's one of my favorites. Oh my God. The, the guy was tremendous. Uh, Michael Hayes, he doesn't shut up, which is great too. Cause you know, he ticks you off with, a, with all, with his rap and stuff. And then buddy Roberts, I, I loved watching him. But that was kind of my feeling there when they returned. I don't know, John, did you, what did you think about them when they came in at UWF Mid-South at that point? 
Oh, I, I thought it was great. I mean, I was always a big Freebirds fan, and you know, like you, I got world class wrestling on television up here in Boston. And I mean, I, I thought, you know, to me, they were a great stable. They were a little bit like the Horsemen. Of course, you got Buddy Roberts there, who would use not Horseman material, but you know, you've got Hayes, the Hayes and Gordy dynamic, and I thought it was great that Watts made Terry Gordy UWF champion as long as he did. I mean, but. You know, it's funny. It goes back to something you were talking about, like the guys doing interviews. Yeah, you know, I remember I would go out on a Saturday. I would record, you know, the WTBS show. And I, I came back and I was watching it with someone who wasn't a big wrestling fan. They were like, you know, OK, you skip through all of the matches and then you just listen to the guys talk. <laughs> it's like because the matches weren't any good. I, and that to me was the difference. Why I thought UWF was better than Crockett, because. The matches were always good. Sometimes you could go uh, a whole two hours on WTBS and they don't have one competitive match. Now, you're, you're on to something there because I, I, I'm glad you said that because I probably need to clean it up a little bit while I was saying because the other part about UWF and Mid-South that it was like Crockett had the smack talk, but if you just watch the TBS show, you know, the matches generally were, weren't that good. Now, occasionally in 86, they actually went into the, to the arenas a lot too. From what I recall, I remember them going to Dorton Arena and they went they went to a couple of the buildings throughout the the area. So that was kind of cool. You get to see it on a TBS show. I believe it was 86 when he did that. But you're absolutely right. Now, I will say that about UWF. You did get more competitive matches. I think what it was was just like the level of promos that you got to see on the Crockett TV was just so, so good. And again, I'm not saying it wasn't like that UWF. And when I say, you know, they became my second promotion it wasn't that I wasn't excited. It's just I'm saying, like, I saw the Freebirds and I was excited. But at the same time, I was like, well, I've kind of fell in love with this Crockett thing, too, because it was it was kind of different for me at that point. So it, it it's um, I guess you're splitting hairs, but you're absolutely right about the matches, because, I mean, the thing about I used to I used to laugh. I always talk to my friends uh, when I've talked. To, we've talked on our show a lot uh, when I talked to Doc and Harper. It's like all those UWF shows or it feels like it. I'm, I'm, I know it wasn't all of them, but it sure do feels like it now and i haven't watched them back in a long time those shows the crap would hit the fan and they'd, they'd be going off air you're like damn it they were really good about everything hitting the fan and then just going off air so like it was really exciting from that standpoint i agree with you and like i said i mean i wish i wish i could have i never got uwf tv live up here and right when i started getting the observer and started trading tapes with people bill watts sold the company and it went downhill. We're going to talk more about that in, in a few minutes. The best year, in my opinion, a manager has ever had in pro wrestling was Jim Cornette in 1984. That's my opinion. What do you think of that? I would tend to agree. Before you talk about 84, you have to remember one thing. If you watch Mid-South in late 83, the tag team division, what's on his butt. It was just a hodgepodge of guys mixed together. The TV shows in 83 were going downhill. When you rewatch it and you can look at it with a critical eye, I didn't think it so much at the time, but as I've gotten older and Brian and I are at the end of, of that year right now, we're at the end of 83 right now. It's just going, it's, it's downhill. And it's not until Cornette and the midnight come in that you feel the pickup. Because before them, I mean, I, I'll ask you, John, do you know before the midnight come in and before the guys they beat for the tag belts the first time, can you list 
the tag champions from 83 off top of your head? I couldn't. I I know Neidhart and Reed. I think Magnum and two won the belts before 84 started. Olympia and DiBiase, am I close? Okay, you're very close. You're actually almost spot on the money. Let me give you some context, though. So at one point, two and Tiger Conway Jr. win the belts. That's like early, right. Yeah, out of nowhere, they win the belts. No slight on those guys, but it's just a hodgepodge tag team. It's like two guys came together out of nowhere, it felt like, at least from the TV when you're watching it. Now, maybe they were doing more in the arenas, but I'm just saying, like, when you're watching it weekly. DiBiase and Olympia win it, but one thing to remember about that team is at one point, that was when DiBiase was claiming to be hurt. So Boris Zerkoff is standing in for Olympia and he's defending the title with Olympia. Um, I think when they finally lost the belt, DiBiase wasn't even on that team because he had already, he had lost a loser leave town. Then you get Magnum TA and Jim Duggan. And the crazy part about it is TA and Duggan are tag champs. They're having singles matches. They're tagging with other people on the TV weekly. Like, there's no continuity with many of these tag teams in 83. It's just hodgepodge, just, I don't know. It kind of felt like Watts was just making it up as he went sometimes. I mean, we've been really critical in the Mid-South show. We're like, this is not good television. It got to the point where it's like, oh my God, thank God the change happened and Cornette and the Midnight came in because it takes off. And when it takes off, it just shoots off like a rocket. But I mean, Corny comes in and they set a precedent, you know, like he, from the get-go, he's just he's he's he doesn't allow Jr. to to announce his team. Now this is in '83, not '84 yet, so he's taking a mic from Jr. and he's he he's the only one can announce the team. But then they get into '84, you know, they beat what is it two and and um and TA for the belts. But Cornette's promos are just tremendous, and my all-time favorite besides the the cake because that was the first time I ever saw somebody go through a cake. <laughs> I will never forget Bill Watts slapping the bejesus out of Jim Cornette. And he really slapped him. Yeah. He knocked, I mean, I remember watching it as a kid. I was like, he knocked his teeth down his throat. Like, I mean, it was just a slap. It wasn't a punch, but mm-hmm. he connected so hard that it was like, damn. Like, and I remember telling people, man, y'all talk about wrestling's fake, man. Look at that. He slapped the hell out of him, you know? But it was because Cornette could just run his mouth. And I remember Watson in an interview one time saying like, or, or maybe it was Cornette who even said this about, oh, that Watts said, it was like, I watched him and I knew if he could get on my nerves that bad, I knew he could get on these people's nerves that bad. And I, I mean, from a managerial standpoint with a guy cutting promos and managing a, a, a top tag team, you're right. I don't know if it gets much better than 84. I haven't watched as much wrestling in life as you, I think. Because like WWF, uh, I'm not the greatest as far as their history goes. I mean, I know certain things, but I, I know in 1984, Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express, him managing them was tremendous. And, you know, a lot of people forget, you know, everybody talks about them with the Rock and Roll Express, but man, their feud with Magnum and two was, was phenomenal as well. It was. I, I think that the Mr. Wrestling two and Magnum TA, that whole storyline they had was the greatest one in wrestling history. But going back to what you were saying about 1983, they did a lot of really convoluted stuff like Mr. Olympia winning the United States, uh, the North American title, uh, pinning JYD while JYD is laying on his stomach. And then they did that weird thing with the North American title where Nikolai Volkov won it for Magnum TA, but then they switched it back and TA had already lost. It was so bizarre and so weird. And it was like Bill 
kind of looked a little bit lost at 83. Yeah. I mean, once you got past this, uh, when DiBiase left, I think that was around the summertime. Once DiBiase's gone, because it started off good, like, because in, in 82, late in the year, that's when, you know, the whole stagger lead thing, and that's when DiBiase turned, and then you go into early 83, and that's when Olympia turns, and two questions, that, that was before that, when two questioned Olympia, and they show the shot of, you know, him coming to the ring, and and he's like, or, you know, he was digging in two's bag, and the whole angle uh, that they did where, where it was like, you know, two figured out, wait, Olympia has been up to something trying to, you know, he's just stalking him. It just, there was a lot of things going on like earlier in the year that was really good. Even when Olympia said, you know, like he turned and he was angry and he was, he was mad because like, you know, he went home when he lost because they did a loser leave town with him as well. He came back and he was like, you know, what pissed me off was I lost money. Like I, I couldn't make money at that time, but you know, and I think he said these words on TV. He's like, I didn't come back with a sock on my head like Junkyard Dog did. You know, <laughs> and it made a lot of sense. Like, you're like, I remember rewatching it when we were doing the show. I was like, you know, I never thought about this as a kid, but he's actually making a lot of sense. Like, he's pissed off because he lost a lot of money. So he turned because Akbar offered him money and it made up for the money he lost. It was like, there was like some logic there. So, like, they did good stuff like that. But by the end of 83, I agree with you, John. Watts. It must have been burned out or just was losing his way because the TV episodes, once you get to, to the end of the year specifically, right before the midnight come in, it is, man, what the heck is going on here? They definitely bounced back. That's the good news. So here's what I got to know. Now, Mid-South Wrestling obviously was purchased by Jim Crockett Jr. March, April 1987. First of all, how did you learn that that happened? <laughs> So I don't think I really understood it until I was like an adult, John, because I wasn't like a, I, I wasn't a subscriber to like the observer or anything. I'm going to say this and I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody who's out there. I wasn't a smart fan. And what I mean by that is like, I understood at some point in my life as I got older, oh, wrestling isn't real. But when it came to like, you know, the observer or the torch and things like that, I wasn't up to date on all that stuff. So like nowadays you don't have to subscribe to that stuff. You, you know what's going on in the wrestling business. But back then, like, you kind of had to be a subscriber to those things to, to kind of know what was going on. So, like, I, honest to God, I don't even think I realized it. I mean, I realized it at the time that, it, that UWF was going away. And then, you know, you started seeing your, some of your stars, quote-unquote stars, if you want to call them that, on Crockett Television. You knew something was going on. But I can't say I was, like, elbow deep in, in the news of it. So, like, I, I, I kind of understood it as i watched those guys make their way to crockett television well, um, no, but, as, you know i don't mean to interrupt you mike but that's the thing like you know you weren't getting the observer so you're watching with your own eyes and like i knew because i started getting it like you know it said right there but your perspective as someone who didn't get that is an important one like you're you're seeing you only know what you know yeah yeah, like I'm glad you clarified. Yeah, I only knew what I knew from what I was seeing on TV. Or knew what you saw. Knew what I saw. Like, and you 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 start putting the pieces together. And when the deal happened, I like I was only like 11 years old. So you start seeing it, and you're like, wait, okay. And then eventually UWF goes away. So obviously you're like, all right. So that's well, they must have bought them. But again, you're just. 
you're just kind of going with it because you're just young. And I mean, there's so many things in life that are taking your attention, wrestling, real sports. I mean, I've always been a real sports fanatic as well. So yeah, you just kind of like observed it. And that that's kind of where I, if you want to say that's where I found out, I found out through watching the TV and I'm just observing it. And then years later, I got into the specifics of it. Oh, that's what happened. That's how it went down. So God bless Bill Watts for, you know, <laughs> making a load of money off of it. Uh, I ain't mad at him, but yeah, it was interesting when it happened. And, you know, like, I can't sit there and say that I, at that point, like felt like a part of me died or anything. I, I didn't feel like that. It just was all right. Well, you could see it in general, just all the way around. If you just observed without being an observer subscriber, you realize like the wrestling world was changing. Yes. Um, now, I didn't have, again, the perspective that I have as an older person, like realizing now I've had all these years to reflect on and go, cable television was changing at all. But like you kind of saw it like happening. Um, and again, I, as a Mid-South UWF person and then as a world-class person, I watched world-class start to go down too. So like I didn't in my mind realize at the time cable television was changing all this. But, you know, you you saw it wasn't just happening with one promotion. You saw it happening with the others as well. Yeah, I was thinking like, you know, if, if it were me and I wasn't getting the observer or anything like that, I mean, the format changed as soon as Crockett bought it. There was no more top matches on TV. It was nothing but squashes and interviews. And then very soon after, Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff were on the UWF television show. And I can only imagine what my reaction would have been to that. Like, whoa, what's going on here? Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff are here. And before long, the Horsemen were on TV. And you also saw some of the UWF guys on WTBS. So I would have, if it were me, I would have thought it was a merger, but I would have been guessing. Yeah. And again, I don't even remember if I thought it was a merger and, and I hate to sound stupid. It's just that when you're young, you don't really understand things. Like, I don't know how to say it. You're just kind of, and you know, you saw guys in different territories. Like there's a, that's the other context to remember. So like, you know, I can remember, although not all the time, I mean, Iceman King Parsons would come in from Texas and, you know, he'd be on Mid-South. You know, we saw uh, we saw Kevin Von Erich, you know, so we'd, we'd see like world class guys on Mid-South and we'd see Mid-South guys in world class. So you saw things like, OK, well, these guys do come in for other places sometimes. So like I had that perspective, but you're just not really smart to business. And you're right, it, it can be very confusing. But also, remember, you saw guys go to different places. So you're like, well, maybe that's part of it. But it, it just was, I don't know if, I, like, I've heard some old school fans uh, of the, you know, UWF and Mid-South, like, say, oh, man, I, you know, I felt like a part of me was taken. But, man, in, in truth, it had changed so much from the Mid-South days, you know, 82, 83, that it was just kind of like, well... I guess we're just kind of watching wrestling. Like, I don't know how to explain it. That's kind of how I felt. It's like, all right, well, it's still wrestling. So I guess we'll yeah. go with it. I can see that. Like, you're, this is the next step. We've seen multiple yeah. steps and this just, this is the next one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's exactly how I felt. But, you know, you, you added some, some perspective to it as well. Like, you know, the, the changes you see from, you know, you go from main event matches to uh, all of a sudden not main event matches anymore. So yeah. I will say the, the one thing that, I don't think there was any way to do this, but when you think about the integration, I guess I'll call it of UWF and Crockett, how they dropped the ball with how they just buried 
all the all the UWF guys. It's just like I remember rewatching the Crockett TV a couple years ago for our show, and it just was like, man, they just Crockett wasn't gonna allow the UWF guys to come in and and be strong. So like, it's crazy how they they bought like, and you think about this later on, they bought that only to really kind of like almost bury all the talent. Like, there's no other way to look at it, in my opinion. I don't know, John. Well, like, did you feel like they buried them all when they came in? Well, they, they they were pretty specific. They bought the promotion so that they they wanted to buy the TV, and Watts had a nice syndicated package. But the purchase happened right around the time where I felt organically that a lot of the JCP guys were getting stale. I mean, we've had now, let me see, two years of NWA television just on TBS. And, you know, we've had Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, Tully Blanchard, Nikita Koloff, etc. And it was, you know, it could have been the world's happiest coincidence. Okay, we're getting this influx of new talent right when we need it. And Dusty was not interested in pushing anyone but his guys. And I think it was a big mistake on his part. I agree. Tell you what, we've got some questions from people on our, our Facebook group in case you needed Another reason to join that Ian Totten, we kind of already covered this. What would have happened to JYD had he not left off? So Edward Whipke asks the big question, in your opinion, Mike, what would have happened if Watts had gotten the 605 WTBS time slot instead of Crockett? Um, first, shout out to Ian Totten. I know we answered it earlier talking about, you know, what would have happened if had JYD not left in 84? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ian's a patron of ours, so thanks, Ian. I just wanted to say that uh, when I saw that question. So, Ed, what if Watts got the 605 TBS time slot instead of Crockett? So, if we're talking short term, John, I uh, think... Both short and long. Short term, it's going to be a hell of a television show. What ifs are always difficult, because I always think of like, all right, are we talking two years, three years time? It would have been great TV, because I watched it, you know, for years, uh, for the most part, outside of that dead period at the end of 83, like how great, you know, the Watts mid South was. So it would have been outstanding. I always question though, whenever we do these, what ifs, like if we're talking long-term man, the world was changing. I wonder how it all plays out. If Watts is there from, you know, when he says the 605 TBS time slot from, from that 85 time period on, like, I think it would have been good to great, which actually it was good to great in 85, 86 as well. But I just wonder long term, I still think WCW ends up dying at some point. Does that make sense? I mean, you, you know what I mean? When I say WCW, I think whatever is in that time slot at that time, I think ultimately ends up dying. I, I just think the world was different. There were too many changes going on and I have trouble looking at long-term 15 year later sustainability of it yeah that 15 years is just way too long to you know say okay here's what would have happened you know there's too far down the road my own opinion is that mcmahon still would have won the wrestling war but watts put on such a great product and he did so well during that six weeks on the sunday 605 show i mean that show went from just being a throwaway show to one of the highest rated shows on cable for that six week period. And, you know, right away people caught on. I think Watts would have had a puncher's chance against Vince McMahon 
uh, especially in the short term. But long term, I think Vince was just well too oiled and too well recognized. And he's the one who had Hogan. He's the one who had Saturday night's main event. I think, you know, maybe Watts wouldn't have died in November 1988, but I think eventually he would have gone down. Yeah, I just I, I agree, John. I just I just think ultimately when you look at like what we know has happened now, just in just with everything the way it's happened, I think he makes it past maybe where Crockett made it past. But then I just wonder at some point, I just feel like history was what what happened was what was gonna happen. And don't get me wrong, he would have done a great job with the time slot. I mean, mm-hmm. it would have been tremendous. But long term, I'm with you, man. It pains me to say it, but Vince wins the war. Yeah, I think that long-term, that's got to be the answer every single time. Room for one more question, I think. Justin Brown wants to know, who the hell was Katzabolus the Welcher? (laughs) I'm watching the old Mid-South episodes when WWE was around, and for about four straight weeks, Watts goes on about this guy he's calling the Welcher. Do you have any background on this whatsoever, Mike? Yeah, so... This is a good question because this came up on the Mid-South Pod when we were covering that era of Mid-South. And Brian and I did some digging on it. And we actually found a message board that had some information on this from a friend of ours, Jeff Bowdrin. Jeff Bowdrin. Jeff Bowdrin actually uh, knew a gentleman by the name of uh, Jeff Steele who lived in Jackson, Mississippi. And this is, uh, I actually pulled this up when I saw this question so that I could read it verbatim. And this is what this gentleman, Jeff Steele, who I guess is Baldwin's friend, knew about Katsabulas. Katsabulas was actually a local. I'm reading this verbatim from from this message board. And it says Katsabulas was actually a local businessman in Jackson, Mississippi. In fact, he had a tire place there, among other business interests, and was once upon a time a sponsor of this guy, Jeff Steele's radio show that he had for 18 years. Jeff says, I knew him and Jeff Steele says, I knew him and remember the Watts comments. I have no idea what cat did to Watts and knowing Bill, he may have cheated him on a tire deal. At the (laughs) time, the Calkin family had started international championship wrestling as their own promotion in Mississippi. For years, there had been this Mississippi guy promoting the McGurk Watts product there. They broke away and started their own deal, including local TV. And that's where Jack Curtis Jr. came into the picture. He took over the Mississippi promotion for Watts of Mid-South. The two promotions ran directly against each other for a couple of years before Mid-South went out and Vince took over all TV along with Rockin' and Turner. If I remember, Jeff Steele says, Cat sided with the Calkins probably after making a series of promises to Watts. By the way, the ring announcer for the Curtis cards in Mississippi, the erstwhile brother Jeff, I remember it all well and Cat was none too happy for a couple of weeks. It must have resolved itself, however, because Cat became a regular in the back with the guys at Mid-South in fairly short order. If Cat is not dead by now, I would really be surprised. So, according to Jeff Steele, this Cat Sabulis guy seems to have run a, a ground with Watts. Maybe, you know, did him wrong on a business deal of some sort. And But ultimately, if you watch the TV... At some point, Watts chills out and leaves Katsabulis alone. But that's what we know about Katsabulis. And John, I'll send you this link to where I found this, just so you can have it in case you want to post it in a group for anyone to read. Thank you for that. And that makes perfect sense. This is a guy who sided with uh, the Culkin group, and that's the end of it. 
This hour always goes by at jet speed. Mike, before you leave, you got to tell us all about the other podcasts that you were on. I host Booking the Territory, the Unprofessional Wrestling Podcast with friends of mine, Chris Harper and Doc Turner. It is known as the Unprofessional Wrestling Podcast for a reason. It is juvenile humor. It is ridiculous. Don't take anything too seriously. It's politics free. We don't get into stuff like that, but old school wrestling was not politically correct. So our no. show tends to not be politically correct. And I'm not saying we, we say things uh, crazy, but they're just juvenile jokes. I'll give you an example. There was a time on, on the Crockett show where we were reviewing. Uh, this is actually after Crockett Turner brought it where JYD uh, is tell uh, Michael Hayes. They're talking. It's when Hiro Matsuda was trying to buy Michael Hayes right before Michael Hayes turned and dog tells Michael Hayes. Now you see how it feels when somebody tries to buy you. And we were like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. So we laughed at JYD just being silly. And then JYD says to Matsuda, oh, no, we don't want no Toyota. He was like mocking his accent. It's just it's filthy. So we, <laughs> we talk about things like that. We're, we're not laughing at it. We're just going, oh, my God, you can't believe this got away. So anyway, we talk about things on BTT. We're, we're right now at the end of 1989 in the Turner era. Uh, just covered Starcade 89. What a cluster that was. We have a good time. It's a lot of fun. Plus, I've also covered the almost four-year run of Smoky Mountain Wrestling on the show. And you can listen to Book in the Territory at tinyurl.com slash bttpod. Or you can go to Book in the Territory. Just search it wherever you get your podcast from. Wherever you're listening to this, you can get Book in the Territory there. We have a good time. It's a lot of fun. It's all old-school wrestling and, and uh, filthy shenanigans. John, I had a blast talking to you. You're right. This hour flew by super, super quick. But come give us a listen and subscribe and give us a chance, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Now, you've got one more podcast you do, right? Yes, the Mid-South Television Review Pod with myself and Brian Last. Everybody knows him as uh, Cornette's co-host. We do the Mid-South show as well. It comes out not as frequent. Booking Territory is out weekly, but you can check me out there. Just go to midsouthpod.com. And like I said, right now we are we in October. I think we're in October of 83. Uh, lots of fun there. You can go back and listen. We, we started with what was on the network at the time. So anything that was the, the last month of 81, I think is where it was. So we, we started covering mid South there and we're through nearly the end of 83 right now. So your question about Cornette in 84 is a good one. Cause we're literally coming up to the point where corny comes in with the midnight and things really, really start to ramp up. But what I like about that show and all my shows is John, we oftentimes romanticize about old school wrestling and we, we like to think it was just, oh my God, it was so great because of this and this. But when you really peel back the onion and you poke holes, there's a lot of stuff that we just kind of let go back in the day yep. now, with this one, Bill Watts, when Mil Mascaris is in or Lanny Poffo's in and they jump off the top rope, it's, they're not jumping, they're leaping. What the hell does that mean? Watts? <laughs> we poke fun at. BS like that for when Watts decides to passively try to explain why those top rope maneuvers are allowed in Mid-South versus any other time when a guy does a move off the top rope. But come listen to Booking the Territory, tinyurl.com slash bttpod, or search Booking the Territory wherever you get your podcast from, and the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Podcast at midsouthpod.com as well. We will leave with the rhetorical question. Why did Bill Watts just not tell the guys to just not jump off the top rope? Moscaris did not do it in every match. Neither did Lanny Poffo. But anyway, I want to thank 
our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. I want to thank everyone for listening. We're going to be back next week uh, with another good show, hopefully, focusing on the spring of 1976, what's planned anyway. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. See you next week. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.